My name is Victoria Carr. And my name is Olatz Monpeo. And you're listening to the Researcher's Code podcast, where we interview women who are pushing the boundaries of tech in scientific research. Today we are joined by Dr. Emma Byrne. Emma is a scientist. She has a doctorate in artificial intelligence and has worked in computational neuroscience. She is now a writer and a public speaker, and she particularly focuses on the science of swearing and language, as well as other projects as well, which we will discuss on today's show. There is a pervasive myth that those who swear have very poor vocabularies, but research actually shows that this is not the case. The people who can come up with the most swear words in a 60-second period of time are also the people who can come up with the most synonyms for a particular word, or when asked to name the most animals they can think of beginning with a certain letter, they have the longest list of words. So swearing, although it has a bad rap, is actually a really creative part of our vocabulary. It's also ideal for killing pain. There's some lovely research from the University of Kiel that shows that sticking your hand in ice water, at least, if you're swearing, you can keep your hand in that ice water for about a third to half as long again. Whereas if you're just using a neutral word, you end up wimping out far earlier. I certainly did, anyway. So you actually did the experiment yourself? I've done it several times. I mean, I started doing this when I was working in a a computational neuroscience lab that was based out of the Science Museum in London. And one of the great things about being there is that we got to participate in their LATES programme. Doing that, we needed to come up with really good demonstrations slash experiments that members of the public could take part in. And of course, the data was always completely useless because the most important variable was always time, which was a proxy variable for how long people had spent at the bar so far. So none of those results were actually publication worthy, but they did lead to some really good conversations about what constitutes a control condition or why you need to approach certain questions in certain ways and why you can find out some things but not others, whether that's a a matter of ethics or practicality or what you can and cannot observe. And so trying to come up with something that you could get sort of basically drunk students, largely from Imperial, uh, to do, we found that getting them to stick their hands in buckets of ice water while swearing is an excellent icebreaker. But that got me incredibly interested in swearing as a subject of research. I came at it because I was interested in pain and how uh, what the papers often call a negatively valenced stimulus and the rest of us call agony uh, can actually drive the way that intelligence uh, it develops, can drive the way that intelligence develops in species over time. The avoidance of pain is as important as the, the desire for something good in our evolutionary history. But my attention got grabbed by swearing and, and swearing just wouldn't let it go. So I wound up with a pile of papers about, I don't know, 12 inches deep, uh, 30 centimetres, there we go, deep on my desk. And that became the book in the end. Wow, brilliant. So how did you get ethical approval to get people to put their hands in very freezing buckets of ice water? (laughs) There are times when I have done this demonstration at talks and some science festivals have a very rigorous risk assessment policy. Yes. So, yes, (laughs) that that is a yes of someone who has had to fill out those forms. 
the one that I usually get callbacks from is you're going to have some water on the stage. What happens if it spills? That becomes a slip hazard. Going back to um, uh, when you mentioned about your book, so it's called Swearing is Good for You. Could you just discuss a bit more about how you came to write this book? So I didn't set out to write Swearing is Good for You because I set out to write a book that was called That's Amazing. I didn't really set out to write a book initially. What happened was I applied to be part of the British Science Association Media Fellowship. And that was an amazing experience. I got a chance to work at the Financial Times with a wonderful science editor by the name of Clive Cookson. He taught me an awful lot about science communication. Uh, and then on the back of that, I got more interested in science communication and engagement. But also I got interested in science as a, as a joyful thing to communicate because that's what got me into it in the first place. It was watching things like, uh, I'm old enough to remember when Johnny Ball was on TV in the UK. I'm, um, I was born in the 70s and he had this wonderful science and mathematics program that was on kids TV. That got me into it. Tomorrow's World, which was essentially a sort of science and technology show uh, that I, I still really miss. That helped me get into science. It wasn't something that my parents were particularly into. And so over time, I've come to own this idea that to communicate science, you don't have to be Richard Dawkins. You don't even have to be Oliver Sacks. You can be playful. You can be joyful. You, you can explore some of the things that seem so very trivial and frivolous as long as you keep returning to the method by which we know what we know and the limits on what we know. Because that's the difference between science and supposition is the fact that things are far from certain, things are contingent on the observations that you can make. And that more than anything is the message that runs through swearing is good for you. It's not that swearing is good for you, it's that the ways in which we try to find this stuff out are varied and strange and sometimes require an awful lot of inventiveness and creativity and that sometimes people are convinced they have a pet theory that they adore that just gets blown up by their observations so it was a much as much a a love-hate letter to research as it was a book about swearing um, yeah it and it's something that I'm working on in the second book which is about taking a scientific approach to parenting because you get given very much like the beginning of a PhD, you start this process thinking, right, okay, I'm, I'm going to nail this. I have a pretty good idea of what it is I want to do. And then the rubber hits the road and you suddenly realise that you are not remotely equipped and the people who are meant to supervise you are far too busy to really help and your main constituent, the small thing that you've got, is just crying all the time and you suddenly realise that you don't think you're cut out for this. And I suddenly realised I'd felt that way once before, about six months into the PhD. And that same thing of going, OK, return to basics. Just observe what's going on. Read as much as you can, but follow the observations. Be resilient. Be prepared that when something that worked yesterday doesn't work today, just pick yourself up and try again. So book number two, uh, which is currently working titled How to Build a Human um, is about this idea of approaching parenting as a researcher 
as someone who sees science as a process, not a product, there are far too many books out there that go, research shows that if you can train your child to resist a marshmallow, they will have an extra three IQ points for every additional minute they can wait. That's nonsense for various reasons, not least that it's entirely done on a population of nursery kids that attended the Stanford University crash. So representative <laughs> of the world at large, they were not. Um, but also that, that idea that scientists are certain, scientists are experts, scientists are full of knowledge. People who do research are full of questions, full of curiosity, are regularly disappointed that something just didn't work that you were convinced would work. And that's so like parenting. Could you just describe how you got into uh, coding in the first place? Is it something that you learned growing up or was it something that you started to learn before your PhD or during your PhD? My first experience with coding was actually when I was quite young. Um, I am a child of the 70s and I was lucky enough that we ended up with a ZX81 at home. And that was so easy to learn to program. And I must have been about eight at the time. I wrote some very, very simple basic. And it would ask you, you know, hi, what is your name? And then the input would be name string. And what is the weather like today? And the input would be weather string. And then it would match that and say, you know, if they said it was sunny, say, oh, that's lovely, have an ice cream. Or if they said it was rainy, then you say, oh, that's a shame. And I lived near Manchester, so of course it was always bloody rainy. <laughs> so I don't even know why I wrote that. But I've had to do all sorts in my career. I, I left university with a French and business degree because my parents thought that that would be incredibly useful. Uh, they also told me that maths and engineering and science were boy things and that it was a phase and I would grow out of it. So far, I have not grown out of anything I've been told I would grow out of. Um, so I came back to computer science. Actually, I came back by setting up my own business in the 1990s, it was about 1996, and I found a, well, I was dating a computer science graduate at the time and so we founded a web design agency because it was 1996 and it's kind of like podcasting then you know it's, mm -hmm. um, so yeah I, I did have that imposter syndrome because my background wasn't officially in computer science I had always been self-taught I was talking about something that as yet was fairly unproven and I sometimes look back at 21 22 year old me and wonder where the heck that confidence went I <laughs> wish I still had some of that chutzpah it gets harder as you get older because you have more responsibilities you know I could risk my savings such as they were I was a recent graduate I didn't have savings I could risk the remainder of my student loan when I was young and single and had no dependents it does get harder if you have caring responsibilities to take those sorts of risks and I think there's a huge gap for you know people who want like me to switch to something that is coding that is technology of making that less of a risk of saying you don't have to risk the shirt on your back, the roof over your head, the food in your children's bellies, in order to try out this new thing. Um, so there are lots of ways of learning to code that rely on online courses or things that you can do in the workplace. And I'm, I'm all for everything that exposes people to coding at any stage. Cool. And so what did your PhD involve then? How did you get into that? Yeah, how did oh. you, like from French and business? 
and you were doing a ma- what was your master's so in? my master's was in IT because I wanted to have something that said I could program and it was only afterwards that I realized I didn't need that but it was a good opportunity to take a year to work out whether or not this was something that I wanted mm. to do for sure I'd always wanted to be Susan Calvin from the Isaac Asimov books, uh, a robo-psychologist. I mean, he is deeply misogynistic, and rereading them later on, you sort of see these hideous misogynistic tropes there. But this idea of somehow blending human cognition and machine cognition at the time just seemed like something that was within our grasp. So I ended up doing a PhD in essentially formal logic. I had to learn declarative programming. Hooray, Python! Um, And essentially learning how to take all of the really messy bits around the edge of human cognition and chop all of those away until you had something very neat and regular that you could express. And I started to chafe horribly at this because I realized it's the messy stuff that's interesting. And I wanted to finish the PhD. I wanted it was, it was that tenacity, uh, that bloody-minded awkwardness that said, just because I've lost my faith in this as an approach doesn't mean I can't write it up. Without being too cynical, I wrote up my thesis, essentially with the conclusion that you know, this is a very interesting way of solving logic puzzles. It tells you nothing about why humans find news interesting which my supervisor hated. Um, and I can't blame him because he was funded to try to find something that would spot interesting news. And I still do not believe that formal logic is the way to do that. But I learned a lot from that. And one of the things that I did learn was evolutionary computation. And one of the things I really enjoy about anything that includes stochasticity and emergence is that it's, it's very much how we came about. The process that led to our intelligence was stochastic, was emergent. It did have the benefit of being millions of years old, which we're not able to do in machines so far, but I still am waiting for evolutionary computation and emergence to have their big moment. Deep learning is doing a lot with the amount of data that we've got, but I still think there are things that we can do that are very interesting with the amount of computational power at our disposal, where through trial and error, through iterative improvement, you can discover things that would just not be possible in any other way. So my first postdoc was actually working in a genetics lab in Aberystwyth, where we had a a robot, a a set of uh, lab automation tools that were chained together to carry out experiments, automated experiments, on knockout yeast to try to work out what each gene did. And so there I wound up using, I think, largely Java, um, because that would allow me to talk to the lab automation kit. What I was doing was letting a machine work out how best to lay out these experiments. So many of your listeners will be aware of something called the Latin squares layout. So if you have to physically array Um, experiments on a plate or so these 64 well plates that we were using you don't want to have all of your repeats if you have eight repeats of one particular experiment you don't want them all in one row on the edge because you have no idea if it's the experiment or the edge effect Um, 
And it comes from crop science, which Aberystwyth is actually massively expert in. It has this brilliant crop science department. And so when you're trying to work out how, you know, adding a certain type of fertilizer makes a crop grow, you don't just have strips. For example, if we tried this fertilizer over, over here, we had tried this one in the middle and this one at the edge. You divide the field up and you try to make the essentially the layout as diverse as possible. And there are certain constraints and there are certain heuristics. But once you get to more than about 12 squares, it's incredibly difficult to do this by hand. It is computationally complex. It's a problem that suffers from combinatorial explosion. So if you are doing three experiments in a field with nine squares, that's fairly straightforward. But by the time you're doing eight experiments on a 64-well plate, there are more permutations than there are you know, atoms in the universe. So coming up with good layouts is extremely tricky. But evolutionary computation has a great way of doing this. What you do is you make thousands of random theoretical layouts and you score them. How good are these as Latin squares? How many things do you have that are adjacent and are also the same experiment? How many times are you putting something on the edge? How many times are you leaving empty wells in these plates because we wanted to maximize throughput? Um, are you doing something that you absolutely shouldn't do? And so by creating something called a fitness function, by scoring each of these potential plates along this, this fitness function and allowing those that do best to go forward and be recombined, some degree of stochasticity, there is a bit of mutation, but you take the best from all of them and recombine them. Over many generations, you start to get really good designs of plates. And so what we needed were Latin square layouts that weren't necessarily optimal. It does feel like coding, software engineering, even in the commercial sense, although I think Silicon Valley is probably still a bit slow on this, but it's coming of age in that it's starting to understand that technology is a tool and tools are there to serve some purpose. And we see it with things like facial recognition systems that go live without being able to function correctly on anyone other than you know a fairly cisgendered white person, anyone else it really struggles with and misidentifies. I enjoy coding. I love the... I was going to say, I love the hit when something works, but that's not what keeps me up at night. What keeps me up at night is chasing that bug. <laughs> I will fix you. You will not beat me. Whereas there are also the things that should be keeping me up at night, like, you know, does this technology affect a group of people who are already, you know, being discriminated against? Does this technology have the potential to entrench privilege and entrench prejudice. It's really hard to keep those two views in mind. And when, when problem solving is that immediate dopamine hit, you know, I'm like the rat pushing the handle for the pellet. Oh, I fix this book, I fix this book, I fix this book. And especially the way we incentivize coders as well. It's an easily measurable thing, but it's a terrible metric. It's a, I still think it's a terrible metric because it means we're focusing on I shipped code, not I wrote something that matters. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
this is a perspective that yeah. I'm quite familiar with. Right. Especially when I'm doing my PhD. I don't know about you, Olats, but like sometimes you spend a week on one problem and then you actually have to step out and look at the bigger picture to understand what the hell you're actually doing in the first place. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so we are very excited about your career path. I think it's very, very interesting. And I'm very interested in knowing how did you go from postdoc to freelancer, science writer and freelancer? That's interesting. Such a big jump. Yeah. Huge, huge <laughs> jump. Well, huge distance. I mentioned earlier I was lucky enough to do the British Science Association Media Fellowship. Now, that's not designed to turn people into science writers. It's to get people who are scientists, engineers, researchers to understand how communications works, how communication through media works. But the training to be able to understand what I do when I consume news, these were all questions that I was really interested in in finding out because I knew that I wanted to have an impact beyond the laboratory and beyond the people who can get the paywalled publications why AI was being represented in the way that it was and I remember sitting down with Clive Cookson when I first arrived at the Financial Times and he is this fantastic old school editor and he said to me sort of very early on, I think in the first day, you know, why did you want to do this? Why are you interested in science communication? And I said, well, you know, science is a really important part of our culture and our political culture. So for example, in debates about things like vaccines or global warming, if people don't understand how science is done, they're not as well able to participate in those debates. And also science is publicly funded. And then I asked this other incredibly naive question, which was, who decides how many pages there are in the Financial Times? And he looked at me and it's like, oh yeah, you're not from around here, are you? Because I was used to journal publishing. And he said, we decide how many pages there are depending on how many adverts we've sold. Your job is to deliver the right kind of eyeballs to the advertisers. Oh, oh, okay. I understand the media so much better now. And in that one day, before I'd written a word, he distilled for me exactly what it was that print journalism does. And it doesn't matter whether it's The Guardian or The Daily Mail, it doesn't matter whether it's The New Scientist or Playboy. Subscriptions don't really pay for media. Advertising does. The BBC is really the only exception to that. And that made me realize that as a scientist, I wish to remain completely pure and only let my message go out to people without the tainting of some kind of, you know, advertising or sponsorship. But I did realize that science communication, like all forms of broadcasting, is about finding and delivering an audience. And I realized that it is possible to marry both. It is possible to find out why someone should be interested in the fact that general artificial general intelligence is not around the corner to find out why people should care about whether or not uh, we see because we have this tiny little homunculus in our head that's telling us what we're seeing or whether it is this incredibly complex collection of neurons that have these very different ways of operating 
it's important that people understand why we know how emotions work. Brains of women look like this and brains of men look like that. You know, what? Why was this research question posed that way in the first place? How was this discovered? Is this replicated in a larger study? Does this have predictive merit? If you show a neuroscientist uh, or a, a neurosurgeon a random brain scan, can they guess at better than chance whether or not this is a man or a woman's brain? No, they can't. Um, these are important messages to get out there. So rather than going back solely into research, I started looking for other opportunities and saw something called the uh, BBC Expert Women Programme. There was a research project done by City University at the Journalism School where they just counted the number of male versus female experts that had been asked to talk on all of the major channels. And they found that female voices counted for, I think, about 15% of people who were invited on and less than that in airtime. I may be wrong on the absolute statistics, but it was embarrassing, frankly. And instantly, there was a response from the producers on these programs saying, we try, we really try, we ring women every day. And without fail, they go, oh, I, d I don't know, I'm, I'm not sure it's me you want to talk to. Uh, I have this more experienced colleague who is maybe better. Talk to my friend, you know, my colleague Dan or Steve or John or Amir or... And it, it was always, talk to the guy, because I don't know if I'm good enough. What do we do? So the two groups got together and went, we need training. These are the, re you know, we'll, we'll, we'll find out why these women aren't coming on. Oh, they don't have the confidence. They're convinced that they don't know how to communicate. Okay, we'll do training. So they announced, the BBC announced on their Twitter feed, we are running something called the Expert Women Academy. Uh, in light of this recent finding, we really want to get women on the air. So if you are in, I think the original one was economics, engineering, science, technology, or maths, please send us your CV, let us know if you'd like to be involved. So I did. And it was the most fantastic experience. It was three, I think three really intense days. And we got to sit in a radio studio and I got to learn that, you know, if you hit a microphone like I just did, that you have to stop and start again because you probably just got a thunk. Um, I learned not to wear bright patterns if you're ever asked to go on TV, uh, never wear stripes. Um, I got to learn how to write a pitch. I got to learn how to uh, approach producers or what to ask if a producer approaches me. I got to put my name down and my telephone number so that producers could find me. But most of all, I got to meet the people who were doing this and discover that they were human and wonderfully human at that because these are people who communicate for a living. And there is a degree of personability that, you know, not wishing to overly stereotype my own field, but. I would say that computer science does attract more than its fair share of introverts. And I am an introvert who can pass extrovert. You know, I, I have a work party tonight and I just, I want to go home and hide. I wish I'd worn my <laughs> introvert necklace as a warning. But I can fake it long enough. And being around those people, some of whom I'm sure were also faking it, but who showed me that it is possible to to tell an interesting story, to 
to reach an audience that you understand. That was, that was eye-opening. But it was only at the Association of British Science Writers Conference that I went to a talk on how to essentially sell and then write your non-fiction book. And this was news to me because you write your book and you send it off and you send it off and you send it off again and you eventually hear thanks it's lovely but it's not for us or thanks it's great but I don't think we've got room for it or thanks it's great but we think we and you do this over and over and over and over again until somebody finally says thanks it's great but could you change 80% of it then we'll consider publishing it and I'd assumed non-fiction was the same it is not you have to write a proposal and one chapter and then people will go, ah, we like that, but uh, exactly the same as they do with a novel, but you haven't already written the damn thing. So that investment, that emotional investment of, but I've done it now, I don't want to redo it, you don't have that with nonfiction. If people are thinking that they would like to write a nonfiction book, get a book called How to Sell Then Write Your Nonfiction Book. You have to write your proposal in your own time, but you can get some money that can buy some time for you to write. And there are also opportunities. There is a society of authors which gives grants to authors who might otherwise struggle to buy at that time. Could you summarise the advice that you already gave mm. for women working in tech or minorities working in tech that want to go into SciComm, especially those introverts yeah. in tech who are like, oh, I quite like the idea of being able to communicate my science, but I don't know how to get started. What would you, what would you advise? The first thing that I'd advise is know what motivates you. Uh, the freedom to actually entertain with science. The review that I got for Swearing is Good For You that referred to it as being playfully astute is the high point of my life so far. Again, I feel I need to apologise to my daughter and my husband for saying that, but it, the best moment of going, I get to be playfully astute. That's all I've ever wanted to be. That might be what you want to do. You might want to be more serious. You might want to be more of a Mary Beard type, or you might want to be more of a... Um, I don't know, someone who has a degree of, you know, sort of authority in your subject, or you might want to be, I'm basically like the guy on the Fast show, again, showing my age here, you know, he used, I think he was basically a parody of Brian Cox, who's like, isn't this brilliant, aren't stars brilliant, ain't milk brilliant, I, I, I'm that one, D decide first who you are, because as with research, finding out that you're doing the wrong damn thing is so depressing, it's such a slog. Once you know what it is that you want to do, be cheeky. Email people who are doing the same thing. I don't, I love it when people email me and go, hi, I've got this idea. Don't pitch me your idea for your book though, because that, that, oh, I hate, I hate going like, oh no, I can't, I can't look, because if I was going to write something like that, that's problematic, I can now never write anything about that. But do ask me about, you know, how do I get, you know, I, I'm, I'm short of money. You know, I'm short of money too, I can't give you money, but I can tell you places that can do funding for your kind of thing. Or I can help you look for uh, different ways of getting training. Get trained, that's my next bit of advice. Uh, it helps with the imposter syndrome, but also it builds a great network. I am... <clears throat> I'm still in touch with a lot of psychomers that I met on the Expert Women program. 
they, you know, we still follow each other on Twitter, we go to each other's events, we cheer each other on, and most of them have gone on to write books or to be on TV programs. Make sure that you have support, uh, easier said than done, but look for it wherever you can. If your partner is willing to support you by taking on more of the caring duties, find the people who believe in you as much as you wish you believed in you. Uh, they will be there to you know, bring you some food when you, people aren't paying your freelance invoices and you're starving. They will be there to pick up the kid from school because you were running late or the BBC rang and said, could you come in and do this interview? They will be there when you have another round of edits to do and you're going through that, I don't want to be better, I just want to have been right feeling of, you know, why did I get all this red ink? Am I terrible? It, it's going to happen. You're going to have imposter syndrome. You're going to need your bunch of support network. Um, and as introverts, that can be really hard. So use your online buddies. My God, we cheer each other on. In D you should see the DMs between sci-commas and some of the open tweets as well, to be honest. But talking about, you know, dealing with harassment, dealing with people not paying invoices, dealing with feeling like an imposter, dealing with having that extra round of edits, dealing with a project that you really thought was going to come off and you were so invested in and it gets canned at the last minute and you don't really know why. Have that bunch of people. And if you need that bunch of people, talk to me, email me, tweet me at SciRiBi, S-C-I for science, W-R-I for writing and B-Y for burn come at me i will open my dms um i i am there for you and places that will lift you up include the association of british science writers the british science association media fellowship and the society of authors again you may be an introvert but practically everybody who belongs to those societies is introverts is an introvert as well uh, we just pretend we're not for about once every three months where we all meet up and the rest of the time we just send each other supportive emails so it, it's alright, it's the kind of group you can join in your pyjamas uh, we are all very friendly I happen to run the Society of Authors non-fiction quarterly meetup uh, so have a look at the events page on the Society of Authors again, tweet me, email me you are always welcome no matter what your stage if you are thinking of writing non-fiction if you are already writing non-fiction if you are paid, if you are unpaid if you are Mary Roach uh, please come to one of our meetings we would love to have you you are listening to the researchers code podcast if you enjoyed this episode why not subscribe to us on itunes spotify or whatever podcasting platform you use also if you could give us a rating that would be really helpful for other people finding us